0: Well, welcome back to our study of 1 John. Uh, We, week by week, are walking through this letter, uh, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. And today, our text is 1 John 2, verses 7 through 11. 1 John 2, 7 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open there. The title of this sermon is Loved People, Love People. Well, before we dive into today's specific text, uh, I want to remind us of what it is that John's trying to do with the entire letter. Uh, If you remember, John is writing to a church or churches in Asia Minor who are battling with false teachers, uh, the Gnostics specifically, who claimed to be Christians but denied, among other things, the incarnation of Christ. Uh, There was Some confusion in the church, though. Do we believe these guys? Are they Christians? Are we Christians? And you remember what John's threefold response is. In answer to the question, how can I know if I'm a Christian? John gives three signposts or mile markers to answer that question. Over and over and over again, repetitively in this book, John will say that Christianity is defined by three signs. Number one, right belief about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is foundational. This is what's at the root of Christianity. Two, there's some healthy fruit that we should, be, uh, that we should see produced. So, number two, if right belief is number one, obedience is number two. Keeping God's commands. Number three, more fruit. If we truly believe the truth about Jesus' person and work, we will love people. So, to sum this up, John gives a theological test, a moral test, and a social test for us to gaze at and discern our Christianity. Now, I want you to zoom in here. Hear this loud and clear. Uh, There's always two different kinds of people hearing a book like this preached. First, there's a group of people who assumes that they're Christians because they grew up in a Christian family, or have gone to church their whole life, or have done some good deeds at different points. First John is meant to challenge you in that belief. John and I want you to consider that you may not be a Christian, But before you get defensive and tune John out, I beg of you this morning, don't. This could be the most important message that you ever hear. Consider these words from an eyewitness of Jesus. Examine your heart and your life. So that's the first group of people. Second, there's a group of people who have tender consciences. They hear the tests or the challenges of John, and wrongly assume that they're not Christians, simply out of having a tender conscience. For those people, John wants to give you assurance. And those are my two goals today and in all of 1 John, to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. So, In chapter 1, we saw that Jesus was, in fact, fully God and fully man. We learned that God is light and that we are called to holiness and confession as his people. The theological test. We learned last week in chapter 2 that God has gloriously provided a way for our sin to be taken care of and in a way that fuels our obedience to his commands. The moral test. Today... In chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, we're going to be stepping into the third test, the social test. So let's dive into God's word together. 1 John 2, verses 7 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Before moving any further in the text, I just want to point out how John addresses the people in the church here. Look at what he calls them at the beginning of verse 1. beloved, it. Love it. He'll continue to do this throughout the letter. And I I want us to understand that this isn't just a, a throwaway introductory greeting. John calls these people beloved intentionally, because they are. They're greatly, greatly loved. First and foremost, they're loved by God himself. Well, how can they know that? How can they know that they're loved by God himself? Well, because God sent his only son to die in their place for their sin. We learned that last week. He doesn't just kind of love them. He really loves them. Second, John calls them beloved because he loves them and wants them to know that. And so I just want to pause here for a second and say, Santa Cruz Baptist Church, do you know that this morning? You're deeply Deeply loved by God. Second, you're deeply loved by me. You're beloved. If, if you walk away from this morning hearing nothing else, I want you to know that. And John reminds them and us of the truth of their belovedness for a very, very specific reason. And it's this. You've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people, hurt people, hurt people. It's the idea that a lot of times those who have been hurt by someone turn around and hurt other people in response. Well, John's idea is the opposite of that. He begins this section, the social test, by telling the people of God just how much they're loved. So, if hurt people hurt people, What do loved people do? Loved people love people. We see Paul using the same argument in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. He says this. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If you're a Christian, you are beloved by God. Therefore, Paul says, put on love. That's where we're headed in this text. And remember that in verse 5 of chapter 2, John has just told them that for those who are keeping God's commands, the love of God is perfective. God loves his people. Now, back in 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 7 again. He says, Beloved, I am writing you no new command, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. You see what John's saying? He says, you're loved. And I'm not writing to you anything new. You know this. It's an old commandment. It's the word that you've heard. Well, let's ask the question. In what sense is this an old commandment that they've heard from the beginning? In one sense... In one way, John's saying, this is elementary Christianity here. It's what you learn as a Christian on day one of your conversion. It isn't something that's only for really spiritually mature Christians who are further along. It's not like you decide to follow Jesus, and then three years later, if you're really growing in the faith, you begin to love people. No. John's saying, this is Christianity 101. It's what you heard from the beginning. It's not a a stage two of Christianity. Uh, Look at how Jesus teaches this exact same truth in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 39. But when the Pharisees heard that he, meaning Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher! Teacher! Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these, the two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying loving your neighbor is as fundamental to Christianity as loving God. In fact, that's how the Ten Commandments are even set up. Uh, The first several commandments deal with our our vertical relationship to God. And the second table deals with our horizontal relationship with our neighbors. But this commandment to love goes back even further than Jesus' words in Matthew 22 and further than the Ten Commandments. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, God says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is an old commandment. It's so basic and old that in our text, notice this, John doesn't have to say which commandment he's talking about. Everyone just knows what he means. It'd be like me saying something about the golden rule. You wouldn't be asking which golden rule. You'd know that I was talking about doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is a foundational and old, old commandment. Love your neighbor. But look at what John says right on the heels of this statement. Verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What in the world, John? Which is it? Is it an old commandment or a new one? With a smile on his face, the apostle John would smile and say both. The New Testament, it uses two different words for new. Uh, One of them, neos, means new with respect to time. And the other word for new, kynos, the one John uses here, is new with respect to quality. New with respect to quality. You see, to, to love your neighbor is an old commandment. We've already seen that. But John's point here is that an old commandment is infused with new power and a new example and a much, much further reach. It's new in quality. What do I mean by that? Well, first, let's look at what Jesus says in John's gospel. We read it as our scripture reading earlier. John 13, 34 through 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you see that? The old commandment in Leviticus 19 told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But here, Jesus is telling us to love as he loved Jesus, the Son of God, perfect love in every respect came to this earth and modeled love for us in a way that had never been seen before. In his life, think about this. In his life, think about all the people that Jesus loved. He didn't just love those who were closest to him. He loved everyone. He loved friends. He loved lost souls. He loved his disciples and he loved his mother He loved those who were hostile to him and even those who crucified him. He loved Jews and Gentiles. He loved the religious like Nicodemus. He loved sinners like the woman at the well. He loved Roman soldiers and he loved the poor. He loved crowds of people and he loved individuals like Zacchaeus, the local version of the IRS. Jesus loved everyone. And he loved them perfectly. In that way, this was an old commandment with a new example in Christ. Notice in John 13, Jesus says, Love one another just as I, meaning Jesus, have loved you. He's given us a new example of love. But also, That new example has new power. Resurrection power through the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. I love this. Romans 8, 9 through 11. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Listen to this, verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Isn't that amazing? Christian, you have the Spirit dwelling inside of you. The same Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead He's empowering you to obey this commandment, the commandment to love with resurrection power. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words, he's saying Christian, You're in Eden 2.0, because Jesus rose from the dead. You're new. You have new life with new spirit power inside of you. If that's true, and it is, you as a Christian have new momentum to keep this old commandment. So we've got a new model in Jesus and new momentum. Third, this old commandment has a new scope in view. Look again at verse 8. He says, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, meaning Jesus, and in you. That you is plural. It's a y'all. John's saying that new commandment, model, and momentum is true in him and you, y'all, the church. The presence of the kingdom and the power of Christ's resurrection is empowering all believers all over the globe to love. This old commandment is newly expansive. It has a new mission to the ends of the earth. Old commandment, new model, new momentum, new mission. And look what John says next, verse 8 again. At the same time, it is a new commandment I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Because Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, because he came to earth and lived a perfect life, because he died on the cross, defeating sin, death, and Satan, because he rose from the grave on the third day, And because he ascended to heaven and sent us his spirit, the darkness is passing away. Isn't that fantastic news? The darkness is passing away. There's still a lot of darkness in this world. I don't have to convince you of that. Watch the news. Watch your own heart. But because of Christ, what he's saying is that the dawn has come. The sun has come over the horizon, and the darkness is slowly passing away because the true light is already shining. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, in one of those books, The Horse and His Boy, there's this scene where this character Shasta, one of the main characters, he's this young boy, he gets locked out of the main city gates for a night. And he has to spend the night out around the tombs of the ancient kings. Every sound begins to scare this kid to death. So I want to read just a little passage from there. It says, now that Shasta knew that he would have to spend the night alone, it was getting darker every minute. He began to, to, to like the look of the place less and less. There was something very uncomfortable about those great silent shapes of stone." He had been trying his hardest for a long time not to think of ghouls, but he couldn't keep it up any longer. Ow! Ow! Help! he shouted suddenly, for at that very moment he felt something touch his leg. The story goes on to describe the rest of his night that evening, in the dark, by himself. I just want you to take a second and put yourself in Shasta's shoes. Try to imagine being out in the pitch dark, alone. If you're in the dark, and you can't see a thing, and prowling around you are wolves and lions everywhere, there's nothing better in that moment than the sun coming up. There's nothing better than the dawn. That's what John's saying. He's saying... Because Jesus came, the kingdom is inaugurated. Love incarnate has come, and the light of his love is over the horizon, spreading everywhere through you, the church. Why? Because loved people love people. This is what Christians do. This, it's the fruit that will be in a Christian's life. An old commandment made new. Now, John shows us the alternative. Look at verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever says, whoever says talk is cheap the dawn has come the light is shining john's saying it's easy to claim to be part of that light but here's john's test if someone says they're in that light and hates his brother they actually aren't a christian they haven't experienced the old commandment with new momentum they're still in the dark John, again in his gospel, in John 14, 40, or John 12:46, John 12:46, he notes Jesus is saying this: Jesus says, "I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If you actually are in Christ, you won't remain in darkness." Christ's light and his love will shine through you. You won't hate your brother. And it's important to note here that the word hate is a present active participle, meaning a settled and ongoing hate. Settled and ongoing hate. Remember that. We're not talking about someone frustrating you or getting on your nerves. We're talking about ongoing, settled, active hate. John's saying a true Christian is incapable of that. But we're not meant to be neutral, are we? A true Christian doesn't just sit around not hating people. Hey, man, I don't hate you. How would you like that on your birthday card? (laughs) Happy birthday. I don't hate you. Think about this. We live in a day and age that holds tolerance as one of its chief values. Tolerance. What a weird, weird worldview. How many of you just want to be tolerated? What if I got up here each Sunday and said, it's good to be here, I guess I'll tolerate you guys. No. John, along with Jesus, are calling for much, much more than tolerance or just absence of hate. Look at verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. I love this verse. First off, this guy doesn't say a thing, does he? He just loves his brother. Straight action, no talk. His actions say all they need to say. And they say everything. It's almost like John was setting us up, though, in a good way. Remember less than a verse ago when I told us about hate and the word was a present active participle, settled, ongoing action? Well, here he uses the same tense with the word loves. This isn't about, yeah, I can check a box because I loved someone one time. No. No. It's about a settled, ongoing lifestyle of love. <coughs> settled, ongoing lifestyle. That sounds tiresome. But here's the deal. It's not tiresome. Why? Because of the source of love. But look what John says. Verse 10 again. Whoever loves his brother abides in love. The light abides. Where have we seen that language before? John 15, John 15, 1 through 5, Jesus says this. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. with jesus as the vine and us uh, as abiding branches his love flows through us as christians it's a well that will never run dry he's the one bearing fruit through us and look at what jesus says right on the heels of this truth about the vine and the branches in john 15. john 15 9 through 12 he says as the father has loved me so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Do you see it? The Father loved the Son. The Son loved us, and loved people, Love people. Abide in Christ. Stay connected to him. Let his love flow through you to others so that gospel fruit might be born. And before we move any further, I actually feel like I need to define the word. Probably should have done this right up front, but here we go. We've, we've been using this word love over and over and over again. But can we just admit that it's unfortunately become a fuzzy word? The same word can be used in so many different ways. I love my wife. I love the San Francisco Giants. I love pizza. What are we talking about here? This is where the Bible is so helpful. It's like Eskimos with snow. They have 50 different words for snow. So when they use a specific word, you know exactly what kind of snow they mean. Same here. The Greek language has four different words for love. Eros, which is used for passionate emotion. Phileo, which is used for brotherly love. Storgos, which is used for familial love. Our, and our brother and friend, Daryl Del Hussein, He comments here that these are all emotions that cannot be commanded, those first three. They are emotions felt, not an act of the will. But in our text today, John doesn't use any of those three words. He uses the fourth word for love, agape, unconditional love. Daryl goes on to say that agape was to recognize the worth of another and be moved to their well-being. I love that. Agape is to recognize the worth of another and be moved to their well-being. Another commentator says that agape love is a love that is unselfish in nature, a love that gives and expects nothing in return. It is a love that says, I love you in spite of yourself. I love you anyway, regardless of the circumstances. It is a love that puts the needs of the other person Before your own. This is the kind of love that led Jesus to the cross. He unconditionally loved us and was moved to our well being at the cost of his own. He loved us, which led to sacrificing for us. John and Jesus are calling us this morning to a life of settled, ongoing love for others. And look at the result when this happens. Look at verse 10 one more time. Whoever loves agape, whoever loves his brother, abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. No cause for stumbling. Another fun word, scandalon. You can hear our word scandal in there. And I think John's teaching us two truths here. Number one, When we love, we're in the light, and we don't stumble. We have a well-lit, smooth path to walk on. Remember, walking in the dark, we've learned in 1 John 1, walking in the dark is dangerous. So, in one sense, I think John's saying, if you love your brother, you won't stumble. But I think what he's really getting at is this. When you love your brother... Abiding in the light, you won't cause others to stumble. You're not a stumbling block to them. Think about this for a minute. If if I hate my brother while claiming to be a Christian, I'm painting a gross picture uh, to the world of what the love of Christ is. I'm causing them to stumble. I want us to just one more time go back and reread Jesus' words in John 13. John 13, 34, and 35. Third time. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for who? one another do you see that Jesus is saying that our love for one another is evangelistic when we love one another like Jesus loved us all people will know that we're his disciples they'll smell Jesus on us as we love one another and it's a sweet aroma but if we're hating one another People associate that with Christ, too. That's a cause for stumbling. Represent Christ well by loving one another. It doesn't matter how much theological knowledge you have. If you don't love one another, you'll be a stumbling block. Remember, the Gnostics of John's day claimed to have knowledge. They claimed to be the spiritual enlightened ones. John says, do you love? And Here's how Paul says it. It's a text that we all know well. It's the classic wedding scripture. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Christians, love one another. It's one of the most important things that you could possibly do. In fact, Jerome, a church father of the 4th century... He tells us that at the end of the Apostle John, the one who wrote this letter, at the end of John's life, when he couldn't even stand or get around by himself, he would ask to be taken into the church gathering each and every Sunday Sunday gathering on a pallet. And do you know what he would say when they'd bring him in on the pallet? He would say this. Little children, love one another. Love one another. Love one another. When asked why this is all that he would say, his response was this. Because it is the commandment of the Lord. And if this only be done, it is all sufficient. I can't begin to stress how important this is to the Christian life. Love one another. Finally, after dwelling on love, John returns to hate. We've seen love and its consequences. He returns to hate and its consequences in verse 11. If if love's consequences are that the sunrise is coming and spreading and that others aren't stumbling, verse 11 is the inverse of that. Look at verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What's John saying? He's saying that the one who hates his brother is in the darkness. Again, he's saying the same thing over and over and over again. They're spiritually dead. If you hate your brother or sister, hear John loud and clear you're spiritually dead. You're not a Christian, regardless of how much you say you are. This is a clear test that John's giving you this morning. Two, not only is this person in the darkness, he says they walk in the darkness. Darkness is their way of life. It's not as if you can compartmentalize hating your brother or sister. Yeah, I I hate... That's that's just in this one little corner of my life over there. It's contained. John's saying, No. If you hate your brother, you walk in darkness. It's your way of life. Third, this person does not know where they are going, they're aimless. There's no clear goal or direction to their walk or their way of life. And here's what I want us to see no pun intended. The reason for all of this, John says, is because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, we think of sun blinding people's eyes, but not darkness. What's John saying? He's saying that evil blinds people to the truth. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4? 2 Corinthians 4, verses 2 through 4. He says, What both Paul here and John in our text is saying is this. Sin blinds us to theological and ethical truths. We live in a spiritual realm where people are blinded to God's plain truths that are all around us. When someone hates his brother, he's blind to the truth. And this is a tragedy. They're blind, and they don't even know that they can't see when it comes to the truth. Do you understand that? We have to remember this, especially when it comes to evangelism. Rational argument alone won't open people's eyes to Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Rational argument alone won't open people's eyes to Jesus. Again, Yes, we should be able to reasonably explain gospel truths and why we believe what we believe. We do have a reasonable faith. But when people are are spiritually blinded to the truth, rational argument alone can never give them sight. It takes a work of the Holy Spirit. And so we begin with prayer. And along with those prayers... We remain hopeful. Why should we remain hopeful in light of that? Well, because we know that we believe in a Jesus who regularly gave sight to the blind. He did it with us. He did it in our own hearts. He allowed the eyes of our hearts to be opened to his gospel truth. He continues to do that today. In closing i want to try again to get really practical what does it look like to love and to keep this old new commandment i'm going to refer to a godly hero of the faith francis Schaeffer. he gives three really helpful tips for what it looks like to love number one he says it will mean that when a christian has failed to love his brother and has therefore acted wrongly toward him, he will go to him and say he is sorry. This goes right along with 1 John 1, confessing sin, asking for forgiveness. That's loving. Number two, Schaefer says, because the offense is often the other way, we are to show our love by forgiveness. This is too hard. Practically when the other person does not say, I'm sorry, Schaeffer writes, we must all continue, continually acknowledge that we do not practice the forgiving heart as we should. And yet the prayer is, forgive us our debts, our trespasses, as we forgive our debtors. We are to have a forgiving spirit even before the other person expresses regret for his wrong." He goes on to say, The Lord's Prayer does not suggest that when the other man is sorry, then we are to show a oneness by having a forgiving spirit. Rather, we are called upon to have a forgiving spirit without the other man having made the first step. We may still say that he is wrong, but in the midst of saying that he is wrong, we must be forgiven. So, going confessing sin, being forgiving. Those are loving, practical things that we can do every day. Third, Schaeffer says we must show love by a practical demonstration, even when it is costly. This kind of thing is all over the Bible, isn't it? The Good Samaritan. Mary loving Jesus through breaking her jar of expensive oil. And most importantly, at the cross of Christ. Loving people will be expensive. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you energy. It'll cost you money sometimes. But it's all worth it. You do so in the name of Christ. You display his character to the world. You're part of the darkness passing away and the sun beginning to rise on a broken world. Santa Cruz Baptist Church, you're loved by God and by me little children love one another love one another love one another let's pray